NATO is about to meet in Vilnius, or is NATO about to break up because the Allies had an extraterritorial affair with Ukraine? Whatever happens in Vilnius, we should remind ourselves of the real history of the Atlantic and how it shaped the idea of the West and the idea of the Grand Atlantic Alliance. I am Jeff Rich and this is the Burning Archive podcast where I try to imagine the world differently with a little bit of real world history. And this is part two of my episode on the Atlantic Ocean, the idea of the Atlantic, the alliance of the North Atlantic, NATO. And last week I looked at gave a bit of an overview of the Atlantic with that combination of a real ocean, a real region, a real uh, big idea and a dominant alliance. And I also looked at how the Atlantic is showing up in current events. And this is very uh, timely today because uh, on July 11th and 12th, NATO is meeting in Vilnius and it's been having some difficulties settling on its new Secretary General, Jen Stoltenberg, has been uh, shoehorned back into the job for, I think, an unprecedented fourth term. And Partly because the NATO allies can't quite decide on who should take over. There was a candidate from, I think, Latvia and there was a candidate from Britain and no one can quite agree on who should be the right candidate. So Jen Stoltenberg has agreed to uh, stay there for one more year. And of course, the other big issue affecting NATO is the war in Ukraine and tensions over uh, how much and how long to continue to support Ukraine, whether indeed Ukraine should join the NATO alliance. So NATO and uh, the North Atlantic, the idea of the Atlantic, the idea of the West based on the uh, transatlantic economy between Britain, Europe, North America, and as we learn, South America and also Africa is very much in the news. So I looked at that uh, last week, uh, as well as giving a few book recommendations for you. And this in this episode, I'm going to look, uh, give you a kind of a rapid fire history of the Atlantic and how its history shaped the ideas and the institutions we uh, talk about today in terms of the North Atlantic and give you a sense of the, I guess, the multipolar, the multicultural, the many dimensional uh, history of the Atlantic Ocean. It's not all about Britain and America after all. And then I will look at this very special relationship of the Atlantic that was uh, consecrated in 1941 in a document called the Atlantic Charter, signed by 
Winston Churchill and Franklin Delaware Roosevelt, uh, Prime Minister of England or Britain and, and President of the United States and its recent reincarnation in 2021 in a joint new Atlantic Charter signed by Joe Biden and then British Prime Minister Boris Johnson is Atlantic Charter number one. Better or worse than Atlantic Charter number two. And what does it tell us about the tensions in the NATO alliance today? Okay, I will tell you a little bit more about me and the podcast a bit later in the show and how you can support my writing and and my efforts here on the podcast to think freshly about the world with a little bit of world history. But let's get into the program. And first of all, let's talk about a rapid-fire history of the Atlantic, which I'm going to tell you about in sort of seven key dates, sort of anchor the chronology through seven key dates. And those dates are 600 BC, 793, 1492... 1497, 1812, 
of the late Bronze Age and to some degree a unified culture. And David Arbalafia describes the cauldrons that uh, have been discovered here, uh, evidence of an Atlantic society that took delight in noble feasting. They must have been offered these cauldrons by chieftains to one another as magnificent gifts. Feasts at which gifts were exchanged speak of contact between centres of power and of warriors travelling short and long distances to seek one another's company. For this elite was not simply a local aristocracy. The cauldrons are evidence of a shared culture along the Atlantic arc. The voices of these warriors are silent, but one sees in the literature of Anglo Saxon England, such as Beowulf, or in the Icelandic sagas, may portray a similar sort of culture given to braggartly display, and no doubt the consumption of large amounts of beer and mead. One aspect of the cultural heritage of the Atlantic was laid down here. Uh, I've also done a podcast on uh, Beowulf, uh, which you can check out. I'll It's actually episode 26 from November 2021 and I guess it's again a sign that Western culture is not just a a linear story from Greece and Rome and Britain and America. It it has many threads to it and another one of those threads uh, relates to our second date and that is 793 AD and that is the a year in which Viking raiders came upon the Christian monastic community of Lindisfarne and raided and destroyed it. It was the beginning of the Viking Age. Uh, the Vikings, uh, the I guess the Nordic people of that era, uh, were uh, again a huge cultural contribution, a non-classical, non-Christian contribution to the idea of the West. Uh, there's evidence that they settled in parts of North America, of the North American continent, certainly in Greenland as well, and the Viking migrations or raids uh, out from Scandinavia in the uh, from the 700s through the 800s and beyond actually spread all across Europe and indeed uh, touched parts of Africa and indeed touched parts of Central Eurasia. The Vikings in different form were among the the groups who travelled down the great rivers of uh, Russia, the Volga, Dnieper, the Don, etc., to trade with uh, peoples in Byzantium and uh, Persia and Central Asia, connect up with the Silk Roads. If you like, the Vikings are part of a connection that's linking up the Atlantic world with the Russian world, the Eurasian world, all the way back to uh, 800, roughly, AD. Our third date is 1492, when, of course, Columbus sailed the ocean blue. 
1492 is clearly a fundamental year in the history of the Atlantic, I guess. It's the year in which the Atlantic becomes a transatlantic idea, a, a transatlantic economy, a transatlantic society, a transatlantic culture. It is the year in which Western Europeans make it to the east coast of America and as a result of that fundamental importance it has been mythologized um, and demythologized an awful lot and it is in itself a very enigmatic event Uh, and just because bad things happened as a result of it doesn't mean it wasn't a very 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 significant event in the history of the Atlantic it certainly was that I think the very best historian to read to really understand the significance of the uh, knitting together of the Atlantic by those those journeys of exploration by Columbus and Cabo and by Vasco da Gama is uh, is not because they were um, especially heroic or scientific or culturally well endowed unique geniuses. It was not the unique genius of Western society that made this significant. What made it significant was that until that time, the Atlantic Ocean was, if you like, a closed off ocean. Not all oceans are made the same for navigational purposes. And the peculiar currents and wind systems within the uh, Atlantic made it a particularly difficult and challenging ocean to cross. You had to find the right path and you had to be uh, find not just the right path to one side, but you also had to find the right path on the way back. And the discovery, I guess, of that, that path was the practical result of both observation crazy ideas, imperial and material ambition of the various people who crossed the Atlantic in the 1490s. So I very much recommend people read Felipe Fernandez and Mr. Mr.'s various books on this whole issue, but because he explains how Columbus and the others effectively unlocked the cipher system of the Atlantic and found the way in which a transatlantic economy could be put together. So my next date is 1497, not so long after after Columbus sailed the ocean blue. Columbus was still engaged in various journeys to uh, South and Central and, uh, I guess, North America at that time but they were largely focused i think on south america but in 1497 portugal after being the home where a large number of the jews of spain were expelled to uh, or when spain expelled the last jews in its population it a large number of them ended in portugal and then a few years later the portugal 
engaged in a mass conversion of all its Jews. Uh, and then a significant proportion of those, those I guess, persecuted people were uh, relocated themselves to an island off the African coast, Sao Tome. Sao Tome is in that sort of indent of uh, Africa that is sort of beneath the Gulf of Benin, beneath the Guinea coast and to the west of uh, the Congo and Angola, just in that uh, big indent in the in the coast of Africa. Um, and uh, there, there was uh, a significant colonisation of the island by a Jewish, Jewish Portuguese settlement. Many of them died in the harsh conditions, but Sao Tome also had a was a place of refuge, but it was also a place not so dissimilar to the sort of offshore processing centres that uh, we have come to know in our modern times in dealing with refugees. It was an island off the African coast where very large part of the transatlantic slave trade was concentrated. At that point, clearly, the Americas had not been settled by Europeans, but the Europeans could travel much more readily down the coast of Africa, of West Africa, and they were engaged in significant trade in people where... Uh, where, where slaves were taken from the African mainland, taken to the island and then exported off to their final destinations. And the transatlantic slave trade would uh, be based in a number of ports like this, uh, Cape Verde Islands and Elmina on the coast and, of course, uh, then huge millions of people would be transported, uh, often dying on the way to the Caribbean, to South America, and of course to North America. And that transatlantic slave trade is totally fundamental to the history of the Atlantic. And next date, again, these are all just brief glimpses into the extraordinary history of the Atlantic that you can uh, find if you read David Abalafia's The Boundless Sea or one of the other books I've recommended to you. The next date, we're going to jump forward quite a few years to 1812. So we've had the American Revolution and so uh, America has left the British Empire and not only that, but the French Revolution has happened in Europe, but the, the consequences of the French Revolution were not limited to France, limited to the old world of Europe. They spread wildly throughout the Atlantic world, including into South America, to the Caribbean. Uh, where they uh, both weakened the, the power, well, 
they weakened the French colonies in Africa, in uh, North America, uh, one of which, at least one of which, was sold to the North American colonies, Louisiana. And they also weakened the Spanish and Portuguese empires. And there was a huge movement of revolutionary ideas in South America that saw the, the formation of new, uh, the, the sort of new nation states like, you know, that would become Colombia and Venezuela and so forth. And America in the, all the, the colonies of the United States of America in 1812 fought another war with their old imperial master with Britain. It was the last war between Britain and um, the United States of America. It was the last war between the father and son of the father and son empire. In fact, in this uh, war, Britain indeed bombed the White House in in Washington, D.C. But after 1812, which also happened to be the year that Napoleon invaded Russia, only to then be defeated by Russia, and ultimately with Russia marching all the way to Paris to uh, defeat and expel Napoleon from Europe in 1814. But after this, effectively, the special relationship between America and Britain is established, is healed sufficiently. They become no longer bitter uh, enemies. They become close rivals and partners. And it it establishes a... I guess, century-long uh, period in which America prospers and grows and becomes the dominant power in the world that it would with its great natural resources and its people and all the rest of it. And it does so within this umbrella of uh, commercial, technological, cultural, and I guess in a way what we'd probably understand today's geostrategic uh, relationships that is founded in a special relationship between Britain and America. And it's also perhaps the time in which, partly because of the impact of the French Revolution, partly because of the impact of the disintegration of the Spanish Empire in the early 19th century, that America forgets or starts to really forget its North America, that is, its Hispanic origins. Uh, It's forgotten that Florida and California and Texas are all former Spanish colonies and America becomes part of the Anglo-American world. Okay, so our next date in this rapid-fire history of the Atlantic, is 1941. This is the year that ultimately will be the year in which America enters World War II. It's the year in which America and Britain uh, agree to what is called the Atlantic Charter in a special meeting between Franklin Delaware Roosevelt and Winston Churchill in which the principles of, if you like, the first articulation of the ideas of the international rules-based order of the American century are articulated. This in this year... Atlantic Charter is agreed to by 
Roosevelt and and Churchill. I will talk more about uh, the Atlantic Charter in the next part of the show. But also what happens in 1941 is a journalist, Henry Luce, L-U-C-E, of Life magazine, the big sort of... Um, um, I can't, I don't know, how would you describe it? It's like a, a very photo, photograph-heavy, like a illustrated magazine, uh, Life magazine in 1941, articulates as a big idea, a big like, like in the way in which Francis Fukuyama talked about the end of history in 1989. Henry Luce talks about the American century in 1941 in a famous article in the Life magazine and in many ways in this year of 1941 the core of the idea of the Atlantic the core of the idea of the special relationship between the Atlantic and the West between Britain and America uh, the idea of Atlantic civilization being Western civilization and having a unique and special relationship with democracy and all that is good is born a special um uh so yeah so 1941 is a very special year in the history of the atlantic and i'll say more about that in the next section and then finally my last date is 1999. I could have mentioned any number of dates. Subsequently, 1989 is obviously a key year with the end of the Cold War. But 1999 is a particularly important year, I think, in the idea of the Atlantic as an alliance, in the idea of the Atlantic as NATO. And uh, the reason for that is in 1999... NATO bombs Serbia in a campaign where NATO steps out of its role as a defensive alliance and asserts a special role in terms of um, the concept of right to protect, to intervene in domestic affairs of other countries to advance I guess, democracy and human rights. Interestingly, the historian Felipe Fernandez Armesto actually comments on this event in his history of uh, civilizations where he talks about the idea of the Atlantic. And I'll just briefly uh, refer to that. So in Civilizations, which was a book published in 2000 and so I suppose written while the horror of the events of the bombing, was sort of like 90-day bombing of Serbia, uh, was still uh, fresh in many people's minds. Felipe Fernandez Amesto refers to this towards the end of his chapter about the formation of the Atlantic. He describes how after the Second World War, an Atlantic system develops uh, between Western Europe and America, which is defined, I guess, in opposition to Soviet power. And then after 19 more particularly after 1991, the collapse of Soviet power, he says, did not at first weaken this Atlantic system, though it surely will do so in the long run, since without a common threat, Europe and America will cease to have common interests. America and Britain and um, uh, 
most enthusiastically and less enthusiastically the other West European powers like France start to redefine in the 1990s a new idea of the Atlantic Alliance, an idea of the Atlantic Alliance making the world safe for democracy. And Felipe Fernandez Amisto describes how this new kind of alliance really articulates uh, the sort of American progressive Wilsonian named after Woodrow Wilson progressive ideals which very much express the idea of America as the exceptional nation. He comments that just war theory had to be extended to the point of distortion to justify a new role for the Atlantic Alliance as a humanitarian warrior. Bombing people into compliance with a moral menu essentially unchanged since Woodrow Wilson involved America with the world. Self-determination, democratic forms, non-aggression. And this was used to justify the bombing of Serbia and the bombing of Montenegro, the partitioning of the various Balkan states, the former states of uh, Yugoslavia, and the um, assertion of NATO, of the rights of Kosovo as an independent state. Fernandez Amisto concludes about this whole incident and the significance of 1999 and the bombing of Serbia for the the idea of the Atlantic, the idea of the West, the idea of NATO. He says this, Though NATO propaganda tried to justify it as a war for civilization, it was really undertaken to save face. When the Atlantic alliance finally breaks down and Western civilization is split by political schism, this Thoughtless warmongering may be seen as one of the acts which deservedly condemned it, exposing its flaws, undermining its civilised credentials. These words written in 2000, they echo today as NATO is about to have its meeting in Vilnius Uh, on July 11 and 12, and is conducting perhaps another war for civilization, or at least justified as a war for civilization, another war justified as a war for democracy. So that is the rapid-fire history of the Atlantic all the way from, I guess, what's generally called prehistory to, I guess, the cusp of the 
contemporary era, indeed, events that perhaps even presage the current war in Ukraine. And what I like to do on the show is occasionally look at what I call a fragment of a burn of the burning archive, a, a document of the cultural heritage of the multipolar world, and I guess a real document in history, and just bring out its resonance with uh, contemporary culture, contemporary events, contemporary world affairs, contemporary world history. And the document I'm going to look at today is the Atlantic Charter, which was signed, as I mentioned, in the Rapid Fire History in August 1941. Well, it was kind of signed. It is one of those enigmatic documents that I kind of like to discuss on the Burning Archive because there was... um, But I'll tell the formal story first. So in 1941, it's clearly a crucial year in the World War Two, as yet America has not entered the war. There's in fact quite strong resistance in America to entering the war. It's be, it it certainly uh, significant tensions with Japan, but it has not yet entered the war. But uh, America or the United States of America is increasingly getting supportive of Britain and Winston Churchill, who is. Britain is besieged with, you know, the Battle of Britain and all that sort of thing. Germany is in control of a large part of Europe. And most crucially, in June 1941, the German state entered the Soviet Union in a massive uh, invasion, some say the largest invasion ever, Operation Barbarossa, uh, which was, I guess, a surprise attack um, on the Soviet Union. And by August 1941, Germany was at the gates of Moscow and surrounding Leningrad, or what is now St. Petersburg, and had commenced what would end up being a 900-day or nearly three-year siege of that city in which a million people died. Uh, So uh, Winston Churchill's aim was to draw the United States into the war, and they arranged, if you like, a... Uh, mid-20th century media stunt where uh, they met on a boat in uh, in the Atlantic with Churchill on the HMS Prince of Wales and Roosevelt on the heavy cruiser USS Augusta. And there, there was a document called the Atlantic Charter. There was, in fact, also a film crew, since this was a mid-20th century media stunt who attempted to film the signing but the conditions of in the Atlantic for whatever reason were difficult and despite a number of attempts the movie crew failed to record the uh, the signing of the document uh, and Churchill's official statement. Uh, still there was a document agreed at this meeting although uh, Churchill subsequently said that that there was uh, there was never ever a signed version of the Atlantic Charter there was various negotiations on the text but Churchill certainly said there isn't any copy of the Atlantic Charter so far as I know I haven't got one 
it was never it was approved by the uh, British War Cabinet by telegraph and there were a number of uh, alterations and corrections to the document but never any signed document indeed when Churchill subsequently wrote about the Yalta conference the big conference in I think it was 1945 which kind of carved up the post-war world between Britain the United States of America and the Soviet Union he said that the uh, unwritten British constitution famously not actually written down unlike the American constitution was like the Atlantic Charter the document did not exist yet all the world knew about it so what did this document actually say so it was essentially a declaration of principles uh, and there were eight principles in the document one that there be no that uh, neither the United States or the United or Britain sought territorial gains or aggrandizement that their country their countries seek no aggrandizement territorial or other they seek no secondly they seek no territorial changes that are not uh, agreed with the people's concerned they asserted the right to self-determination Thirdly, fourthly, they sought to lower trade barriers and increase freedom of commerce, I guess, between countries. Fifthly, uh, they sought some level of global economic cooperation and advancement of social welfare. Sixthly, they sought a world free of want and fear. Seventh, they sought a freedom of navigation, because after all, the British Empire ruled the seas. And finally, there was to be disarmament after the war in fact if i just read that which is in fact the longest clause of the whole document so this longest clause uh seeking disarmament or to be more precise abandonment of the use of force was written in august 1941 when uh let's remember germany is probably still winning the war and has has um has besieged the the two main cities of the Soviet Union, uh, and it says they uh, the, that the United States and Britain believe that all of the nations of the world, for realistic as well as spiritual reasons, must come to the abandonment of the use of force, since no future peace can be maintained if land, sea, or air armaments continue to be employed by nations which threaten or may threaten aggression outside of their frontiers. They believe, pending the establishment of a wider and permanent system of general security, that the disarmament of such nations is essential. They will likewise aid and encourage all practicable measures which lighten for peace-loving peoples the crushing burden of armaments. So it's a little bit uh, ambivalent. It generally talks about disarmament and abandonment of the use of force, but it could also just be interpreted as doing so in relationship to nations that threaten aggression outside of their frontiers. Did the special partners, the Atlantic Romantics of Britain and the United States, live up to this eighth declaration of the uh, Atlantic Charter, eighth principle of the Atlantic Charter? Well, 
I'll let you be the judge of that, I guess, the historical record in terms of America's involvement in wars since is perhaps not so great. However, the Atlantic Charter um, had a late revival in 2021. For 80 years after its first signing, and like its first uh, signing, it was perhaps another media stunt, this time a uh, early 20, well, a 21st century media stunt, and there was a, a new Atlantic Charter, no less, reproduced indeed in format vaguely similar to the initial Atlantic Charter that was issued by the President of the United States, Joe Biden, and the prime, then Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, Boris Johnson, in June 2021. And it had some similarities with the uh, the text of the first charter, but one has to say was perhaps not as well written. It's a lot muddier what is actually being said in this charter. And it seems gone is any intention of lightening the load of armaments on the peace-loving peoples of the world. The first principle of this new Atlantic Charter is to defend the principles, values and institutions of democracy and open societies which drive our national strength and our alliances. And then and there's four or five sentences elaborating on that. The second principle is to strengthen the institutions, laws and norms that sustain international cooperation to adapt, adapt them. Goodness me, this is appallingly written uh, stuff. So we intend to strengthen the institutions, laws and norms that sustain international cooperation, to adapt them, maybe the principles of democracy, I'm not sure, to meet the new challenges of the 21st century and guard against those that would undermine them. And here there is an assertion, of course, of the rules-based international order. Thirdly, we remain united behind the principles of sovereignty, sovereignty, territorial integrity and the peaceful resolution of disputes. Fourthly, we resolve to harness and protect our innovative edge in science and technology to support our shared security and deliver jobs at home. <laughs> A very domestic political statement there. Fifth, we affirm our shared responsibility for maintaining our collective security, not everyone's collective security, and international stability and resilience against the full spectrum of modern threats. And there's an assertion of the need for NATO, noting that we have declared our nuclear deterrence to the defence of NATO, and as long as there are nuclear weapons, NATO will remain a nuclear alliance. No lightening of the load of nuclear armaments there. Sixth, we commit to continue a building an inclusive, fair, climate-friendly, sustainable, rules-based global economy for the 21st century. Wow. And seventh, the world has reached a critical point where it must act urgently and ambitiously to tackle the climate crisis, protect biodiversity and sustain nature. And they will prioritise these issues in all our international action. 
whatever that means. And eighth, we recognise the catastrophic impact of health crises and so there'll be cooperation on health. So that is the new Atlantic Charter. Not exactly the same uh, stirring document. Perhaps the 1941 document was and perhaps not surprisingly it has not quite uh, had the same historical resonance as the 1941 document. And perhaps, therefore, that is why the uh, NATO alliance is perhaps, after all, as uh, Emmanuel Macron once said, brain dead and struggling to find its way in the world without an invented enemy that can take the place of the Soviet Union. It's perhaps, I think, as John Quincy Adams said, searching the world, uh, roaming the world in search of monsters. So the Atlantic, uh, I hope I've given you a bit of a, a rapid fire tour of the history of the Atlantic, the way in which that unusual and peculiar and many-threaded history has contributed to perhaps some of the illusions of the Western powers about their role and their dominance in the world, uh, but that may also contain the seeds for the emergence of a different kind of world that perhaps we can also see more clearly if we pay attention to all the dimensions of world history. As well as The Burning Archive, I write on the blog, theburningarchive.com. I also write a weekly newsletter that you can subscribe to for free at jeffrich, J-E-F-F-R-I-C-H, dot substack.com. As well as subscribing to my free weekly newsletter there, you can become a paid subscriber and you'll get additional writing from me every fortnight. And you can also check out the Burning Archive YouTube channel where I include stationary video versions of this podcast and do other videos looking at reviews, history books, all sorts of stuff. And you can also buy my books at Amazon.com and other online retailers, Gathering Flowers of the Mind, my collected poems, and From the Burning Archive, Essays and Fragments 2015 to 2022, the sort of collection of essays I wrote on culture, literature, history, uh, and I guess social issues over a period of seven years. And shortly I'll be releasing my next book, 13 Ways of Looking at a Bureaucrat. And finally, you can also check out my articles that get published on johnmenadieu.com, the Pearls and Irritations website. So uh, do check out all those things. hope you've enjoyed my podcast and I will be with you again next week. I haven't quite decided what I'm going to be talking about next week, but I'll see you then.